Welcome to the show, everybody. How awesome is my life that I get to talk to these people like our guest today, who is in Biosphere 2. Dude lived in a dome for over two years. I got to talk to him. Amazing. And such a relevant conversation for today. This is one of the silver linings of the the pandemic, um, as not only do you get fun Instagram videos like Mr. Silver Linings from me, three episodes out so far, three more being delivered real soon, but um, I'm I'm able to get guests in a really timely fashion of like exactly what I want to be talking about and, and uh, things that are really timely and relevant, people that are just releasing books and uh, and it's been uh, a lot of fun because I've been able to what I'm what I'm having to compromise with an audio quality, which we've been putting more time into post production. So hopefully um, it balances out a little bit. But it's allowed for me being able to get all these great guests and do more episodes as well. So pros and cons with everything, I guess. Bummer that I won't be doing an update, you know, in terms of live touring. I don't think that I'll be live touring this year. I don't think that stand-up comedy will be coming back until um, next year. It's uh, very unfortunate. One thing that I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, I was really excited to be doing my Head Talks tour in May, my favorite tour that I put together. So doing a virtual version of it, it's not quite the same, but it's also better in some ways as well. It's a more free-flowing conversation, and you guys get to be involved on Crowdcast. I go on, and there's a whole column on the side where you can uh, weigh in on the discussion. You can chat with other people. The first show, we had about 500 people register. We had so if you register, you can watch the replay at any time. And if you go to Patreon, if you support me for $5 a month or more, you get the shows for free. So you'll, you'll uh, get a great deal that way and be supporting me and my staff putting all of this together. And, and it allowed for people to, there's a, there's a section you can ask questions and then people can vote on questions and upvote, uh, kind of like Reddit. So uh, so we select the most popular questions to discuss. Um, we, we talked all about comparing this pandemic to a psychedelic experience. Next one on May 2nd, we'll be talking about uh, about the history of psychedelics, have a historian and a policymaker um, and psychedelic advocate coming on. I'm going to be doing a Q&A for Psychonautics on May 16th on Crowdcast as well. You can find all this at my site at shanemoss.com. Go and follow me on patreon.com slash shanemoss. And remember, guys, this is the best time for a lifelong learner. If you have that extra time, you're trying to pick up some new skills, you're trying to stay stimulated, if you just passively watch TV, I mean, individual differences apply, but chances are it's not going to be good for the old noggin. It's not going to be good for the mental health. So what do you do? Stimulate yourself. Learn. Have uh, Do something that's going to make you have better conversations. And if you go to great courses, I, I currently would recommend the course Language and the Mind. 
but there's a zillion different courses on there uh, to check out. Um, but if you want to hear insights of how, how the 3D framework helps explain the interconnections between genes, brains, bodies, and the environment, and stuff like that, go to Language and the Mind. Uh, go to Great Courses Plus uh, today. GreatCoursesPlus.com slash here we are to get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. When I first started taking great courses 10 years ago, it would cost over $200 for one class. Now you can take as many classes as you want. Get into one, not feeling it, check out another one. Or do what I do and check out a few of them at the same time. I think it's good to uh, do that. I like reading a few books at once or taking a few classes at once because you end up making a bunch of novel connections um, and, and it helps with re retention and creativity because you're combining different ideas from different courses that you learn. That's the kind of stuff I learned from taking courses. Isn't that interesting? Now I'm sharing it with you. Go to great courses, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are and sign up today. You'll be supporting me and yourself and this wonderful partner of mine, The Great Courses Plus. Enjoy today's episode and uh, stick around until the end and I'll share some behind the scenes. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am so excited for my guest today is Mark Nelson. Mark, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I guess my, my greatest claim to fame and infamy is I was part of the Biosphere 2 crew for the first closure experiment, 1991 to 93. I'm also heavily involved in ecological engineering, kind of putting into practice what we know about ecology in challenging projects around the world. And I was a co-founder and I'm the head of the Institute of Ecotechnics. And I am now in beautiful semi isolation in Santa Fe or outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, nice. I, uh, I, I haven't, I've, I think I passed through Santa Fe once. I haven't got to spend any time there, but, uh, hopefully I'll get a visit in with you when all of this, <laughs> when all of this clears. Totally. Um, I, uh, you also have a new book out, correct? I do. Uh, very good timing because I think by the time, this podcast is uh, released. Yeah. We're, we're shooting for a second edition of Life Under Glass, which is a really gripping firsthand account that I and two of the other crew members, we call ourselves Biospherians, and we can get into that later. We published the first edition, actually, and wrote it while we were inside Biosphere 2. And now we've updated it with, uh, you know, a look back on the importance of Biosphere 2, a great Second preface by Sylvia Earle, the, the marvelous ocean explorer, and research highlights, etc. But we've left the core of the book as is because of its historical value. So that's going to get released on Earth Day, uh, just coming up in a week and a half or so. So it's Life Under Glass, Crucial Lessons in Planetary Stewardship. 
So, so why don't you tell uh, the, the listeners and viewers how the Biosphere Project came together in the first place and then how in the heck you found yourself living in a biosphere? Well, the two, the two stories are kind of connected, and I guess the very short version is after working with a group of people uh, in the Institute of Ecotechnics and having conferences on really big topics and meeting some of the top ecologists, scientists, explorers, and thinkers of our time, we thought that uh, our we're big space nuts. Uh, I think that part of the future of the humanity is in space. Mm -hmm. And so we met a lot of people from the space program and it was really clear that we could do really amazing things in terms of rocketry and astronautics, but life support and the ability to sustain people in space, especially on a long, long term basis was really lacking. So one of the inspirations of Biosphere 2 was Let's see if we could make a man-made, a, a human-designed biospheric system and learn what we don't know about biospheres. So eventually we could build similar systems on the moon, Mars, in orbit. And of course, if you, we designed it also to be a beautiful Earth laboratory. So we pulled in a really large design team, you know, many institutions from the University of Arizona, Smithsonian, the New York Botanical Garden, it could go on and on and on. And we launched it with a couple of conferences exploring, was this totally crazy or is this doable in 1984? And, you know, having gotten enough either remarkably crazy people as well as being world-class scientists to say this is, all, this is doable and it should be really, really interesting to learn from. We, we uh, spent the next three years in deep design work for Biosphere 2, and we, we had to build basically a whole research complex. This, the, the project was located in, appropriately enough, Oracle, Arizona, hmm. which is about an hour uh, north of Tucson and an hour and a half uh, down from Phoenix. So we built this research center, including a small closed system, and then we broke ground for Biosphere 2 in 1987. And it was a massive, I mean, if people, people should definitely go and look up images of Biosphere 2 because we, de we decided to make it a stunningly beautiful architectural facility as well as this pioneering research one. So it's quite glorious and, you know, three to 400 people were often working on and inside of Biosphere 2 for three and a half years to get it ready. And finally it was, and there's another story about Originally, I was a director of the project, and the more I learned about closed systems, and I had an experience, a quite life-changing experience in our Biosphere 2 test module, I decided to join the trainees and become a candidate for the closure. Mm -hmm. And luckily enough for me, I was chosen as part of the first team of eight and spent two years in there. I'm curious if you have any um, thoughts on on um, if you were to build Biosphere 3 today, uh, you know, some 30 years later, uh, would it be, how much easier would it be? W would there be any like new modern technologies or anything that, that oh, totally. Used? Yeah. <laughs> we used right. we used the joke because it was state of the art for, you know, 89, 90 when we finally had to right. make decisions. But 
you know, we spent $20 million with Hewlett Packard to design a extremely complex uh, thousand sensors and, you know, control panels to where data was available on a fairly instantaneous basis. And I'm pretty sure you could buy that off the shelf and it would be a much better system than we, than we <laughs> yeah. had. We used to joke that eventually, because we, we built Biosphere 2 and people often forget that, to be a hundred year experiment. And uh, it's gone through some changes uh, in how it's being operated. But we always figure that all the, the technology that we originally used would go into a biospheric uh, museum of mm. a ancient but once impressive technology. Mm -hmm. I imagine. Um, and then how long did you end up living in the biosphere for? Well, the design of the first uh, mission, the first experiment was two years. And one of my teammates uh, calculated that we stayed in there two years and 20 minutes because uh, some of the uh, celebratory speeches went on a little bit. <laughs> so it's a little bit ironic. You know, a, a number of our heroes were there at the, so we call this the re-entry. It was the re-entry to Earth's biosphere. And by the yeah. way, you know, I'm sure it, uh, some of your, your listeners are thinking, why Biosphere 2? Where is Biosphere 1? Well, yeah. it's not a secret uh, Pentagon project deep in the, in the Rocky Mountains. Biosphere 1 is our planetary biosphere. Mm -hmm. And it, currently, it is the only biosphere and planetary biosphere that we know, which I think should underline you know, why it's incredibly precious. It's also mm -hmm. our life support system. Mm -hmm. And people are beginning to to uh, realize that. How how closely were you trying to model Biosphere two after uh, Earth after Biosphere one, and and what what were the major differences? Well, I mean, it, you know, if, when people say it's a model of planet Earth, you know that that's insane. That's uh, mm -hmm. it gives people an idea because it was a stunning. Uh, a stunning facility and it, it's hard to remember now and you're obviously a younger generation Shane and you know many of your, your listeners but in the mid 80s to early 90s people didn't even know what the word biosphere was We'd have I, I think it was a Pauly Shore movie that informed <laughs> mo most people by Bi biodome pretty embarrassing yeah. I, I, think I, <laughs> I think I went in incognito to see it I was in I was finishing my PhD in Gainesville at the University of Florida. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we've learned a, a tremendous amount, you know, back to your question. But, and, and the hope was, in fact, that there would be a biosphere three, four, five. You know, the fat lady hasn't sung. Our, our point being that we spend enormous amounts on cyclotrons for physicists. When you think about the stakes of learning to live in a regenerative, a sustainable way, with our global biosphere, you know, that, that price tag that gets bandied around the $200 million for Biosphere 2, we would cut that a lot. And you could make uh, biospheres in a lot of different versions. Uh, and probably the price keeps on coming down because we had to do a lot of pioneering research. So back to your question about was it a model of planet Earth? No, of course it wasn't. We didn't have deep geology. We didn't have mountains. We had a, a rainforest mountain, but it was like 30 feet tall uh, to simulate a yeah. cloud forest in, in the Amazon. And Biosphere 2, it was like a slice of the tropical world. 
And we decided, of course, in Oracle, Arizona, we have plenty of sunshine. It gets really, really hot in southern Arizona. Tourists don't come there in the summertime for good reason. So we, we uh, had a series of uh, land-based and water-based biomes, like little versions of rainforest, tropical savanna, a fog desert, a coastal desert. We had an amazing system, you know. I'm in love with every every part of the living system there, but we we managed to replicate five uh, ecological zones of the Florida Everglades in about 200 feet. We had a coral reef in a living ocean. Still hmm. to this day, it was the largest coral reef ever ever designed. And then of course we had eight people and we had to feed ourselves. So we had a half acre farm that was amongst the most productive in the world. And we couldn't, it had to be highly productive and we couldn't use any chemicals because in a tightly sealed system with virtually no air exchanging between inside and outside, if we use chemicals, our, our you know, watchword was, if we put a chemical into biosphere two, it's gonna be in our food and in our, in our tea within weeks. Mm. So a mindfulness such as we all need to start emulating certainly permeated the crew. Mm. We don't do anything bad because we will suffer. The mm. biosphere's health and our health are the same. So, so Biosphere 2 is certainly not a model of planet Earth, but it had large enough you know, recreated chunks and diverse biodiversity that it could be a really new kind of Earth laboratory. Mm. And so lots and lots of research came out of the, the work that we were doing. How, how, much, uh, how much was there incentive uh, to model the way Earth actually is, as opposed to just making simply the most livable system for, <laughs> for humans uh, and, and going like, well, do we really need deserts that bad? Or, you know, what, what compromises were, uh, oh, were made to make it livable? May, well, many, many compromises were made. And uh, I do remember Sylvia Earle, who spoke at the re-entry, as well as writing the forward to the second edition, she was like, you know, if you really were trying to model planet Earth, you know, the ocean should be 70%. And there were other people saying, you know, why, ha why have a fog desert? It's not that productive. But we love that the savanna and the desert, we call them our biovalves because they had an active season. And then once you cut off the rain, they kind of go into hibernation. So mm. we could play with their cycles. Um, the other reason I was smiling is that the most serious group that was going to make Biosphere 3 was this group of uh, Russian Soviet scientists. And they said, you know, in Biosphere 2, we tried to make it as clean and healthy as possible, mm. which I have to say I appreciate. What they said, <laughs> we're going to make one in Russia, and Russia, you know, the Soviet Union, is really, really polluted. So we'll make Biosphere 3, you know, maybe in Moscow or maybe on a Russian mountain, and we'll make it really polluted. We'll have, you know, pollution in the water, in the air, in the soils, and we'll use the Biosphere 3 as a way of studying how to clean up a biosphere. And, and to me, that kind of illustrated why I still think we should think about making more biospheres. I think every first-class university should make one. Every first-class city should make one, both for research and for public education. 
Hmm. And you could do it, you know, if you put one up in Scandinavia, I don't think you're going to make a tropical rainforest. You could have a whole suite of the northern biomes there. I mean, why don't they just make it partially a reality show and, and get funding from from doing that? Everyone everyone tunes in to watch like Survivor or Big Brother. Or all, all you know, Shane, uh, I hate to, to confess, <laughs> but full disclosure, the first guy who did the Big Brother was a Dutchman who came to buy us for a two and he saw the excitement. Now, I have to say, when we did, were thinking and, and building Bias for a two, we had no idea that it would capture the world's imagination. Mm -hmm. We thought that it would be a quiet research facility. Why would you put, put it in southern Arizona if you wanted people to come to it? We, but we figured they, it was privately funded by Ed Bass, primarily and some corporate sponsors, that we'd make back the investment by spin-off technologies and selling one maybe to Euro Disney and to Los Angeles and Tokyo or London, New York, places where millions upon millions of people go and they would mm -hmm. go to a you know spectacular real Disneyland, not a fake Disneyland. Mm -hmm. So but Biosphere mm -hmm. 2 caught the world's imagination. Mm -hmm. And you know, looking back on it, I I'm it's not that we were such geniuses. I think there was sort of a hunger at that time that Biosphere 2 tapped into. It's mm -hmm. really hard as I say even the word biosphere was kind of foreign territory, but Biosphere 2 was small enough. It was only about three acres of land space, very tall ceilings, but what's that mean, 80, 90 feet? But it was small enough that people could actually visualize what a biosphere is. Mm -hmm. And then we became, you know, our zoo exhibit. We're the living biospherians. Now that mm -hmm. was kind of shocking. And occasionally we'd pick up our cameras, you know, because there were 50 or 100 people outside pointing cameras at us, but I finally got to really enjoy it because we were demonstrating that being ecological, being a biospherian is not a deprivation. That's what, I mean, it was tough. There were tough aspects and we will talk about that group dynamics, sure. but it was two of the greatest, most spectacular years I've ever spent. Hmm. Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 money line wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. So, you know, we mentioned technology. Obviously, there's been leaps and bounds, and especially in, in computers and sensors and everything else in uh, the, the 30 years since. What do you think about um, culturally the differences between where people were then on environmental issues and where people are 
now, especially that now that there's a pandemic and everyone's talking about the, uh, an apocalypse and all this. It, I, I think the idea of a biosphere would, would seem pretty appealing um, to people these days. Well, I, I do like this. I, I mean, obviously the pandemic is going to be very tragic. It's, it's shocking and we don't really know how it's going to play out in this country or especially in poorer countries, less well-equipped to deal with it. But, you know, we used to say that Biosphere 2 is 50 years ahead of its time. And it's just remarkable, you know, especially the younger generation, how much they're on board and you don't have to start by explaining a lot of things that, you know, took a lot of, a lot of, of, of words and dramatization, you know, for older people to get. You know, the pandemic is something. I think uh, once we get past that, we need to really focus on the relationship between humans, technology, and the biosphere. And I'm not a Luddite. You know, I love my laptop. Uh, my girlfriend did beat me into getting an iPhone, <laughs> etc. But, you know, we're, you know, humans are technologically very gifted. You know, we're like kids with new toys. And, you know, when you think about the span of Earth history and even human history, the Industrial Revolution was only 300 years ago. You know, we are still learning the consequences of technology. This was another thing that I loved about Biosphere 2, because we had to get not only great ecologists to achieve, you know, this amazingly diverse world you know, in, in, inside a, a glass uh, house, but we had to get engineers who could carry out the ecologist's vision, and the engineers had to learn, because Biosphere 2 is virtually airtight, that no machine, no materials, no process could go into Biosphere 2 that would produce contamination, pollution, that the living systems couldn't recycle and integrate. And that, I think, is, you know, the four, you know, that, that's the edge. We'll continue to make amazing mm -hmm. technological advances. But we are just beginning to realize that technology lives in, the earth is far more tightly sealed than Biosphere 2. Every, mm -hmm. every machine that we put out there has consequences. And mm -hmm. we need to think about the totality. And that's mm -hmm. starting to happen. It's amazing. Global climate change, you know. It used to be a point of pride in the 19th century cities to have dirty air and big, tall smokestacks. Now, because that was a sign that we're modern, you know, we're making money. You know, yeah. we need to, we need to uh, figure out how to make human life, you know, really well, uh, you know, accomplish everything humans need to do, but without this unintended consequence of damaging our health and the health of every other living being. Hmm. I, I mean, just in, in terms of the world of, uh, of, of science, I, I mean, I've only been kind of into science communication stuff for uh, eight years or something um, and, and chatting with scientists for, you know, under, under a decade. But it seems like, uh, you know, interdisciplinary is, is this big buzzword these days that maybe, maybe people weren't talking about the importance of being interdisciplinary um, as much or, uh, in, in the 80s. Um, and I, I wonder if, I wonder if um, universities would be more 
receptive to um, more experiments like this. And if you, as you as you talked about engineers needing to learn ecology, and it, it seems like scientists um, that I've talked to are starting to kind of understand that. And and you know, a lot of you hear a lot of criticism about reductionism and how we need to understand these emergent properties and these dynamic systems and these butterfly effects and and stuff like that. So, do you think that people are are it, in some regards, more receptive to some of these ideas? Uh, I'm doggedly optimistic. But I, ha <laughs> but I have to say, you know, I'm in my 70s now. Multidisciplinary work has been a buzzword ever since I went through university in the late 60s. Yeah. And, and it mostly gets talked about and not implemented. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, hey, we are flexible. We are, humans are survivors. And I think it may focus our minds that we're actually, in a very serious way, talking about the sixth extinction. Oh, yeah, meteors have hit the planet and, you know, catastrophic geologic events. This is the first time we're driving really large number of species to extinction because of human action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a terrible word that, you know, since I'm into eco-psychology, it's called solastagia. And it was coined by an Australian uh, sci uh, environmental psychologist. It is the sadness that people feel when a beloved landscape or city starts to degrade and become less pleasant and habitable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a near universal condition around the world. But is this inevitable? No, this is not inevitable. You know, like we could have put in, you know, slums and deprived areas and had a junky corner like I grew up with in New yeah. York City and Biosphere 2. You know, but th these are all, any problem that, that humans have made, humans can fix. Yeah. This is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that was going to actually be my next question in terms of, of replicating uh, Biosphere 1 and Biosphere 2. Did you, did you throw any idiots in there just, just to, like, screw up policy or anything for you guys that you would have to work against? We didn't quite do the biodome of having two complete morons in there. But, but, but you know what I, what I like, and I think Life Under Glass sort of uh, illustrates, is that you know, we, we were pretty, uh, a diverse group and, and we decided, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of our time. There were four women and four men in that crew that I was part of. That was a given. We mm -hmm. were going to be gender neutral and, mm -hmm. you know, patriarchy, I think is one of the problems of our time, you mm -hmm. know, when we're really looking at the deep seated issues and how the world needs to change and is going to change. Yeah. So, uh, none of us were, were ready to actually operate a world. And the challenges that happened, I, th I think I got a little taste of it. I, I'd mentioned already that 24 hours I spent in, in that test module absolutely blew my mind because, you know, I've devoted my life to ecology and to trying to, you know, meet human needs with while upgrading the surrounding ecology. But I realized how much of that was in my head and not in my body when I was in that test module for 24 hours. You mm -hmm. get in a closed system and the intensity and the in, in de, interdependency of you and all of that life form becomes absolutely, you know, breathtaking. Mm 
-hmm. It's visceral. I, I don't really, I, I have a chapter, I wrote another book before this uh, second edition of Life Under Class called Pushing Our Limits. And I had two chapters on the human experience, one dealing with cabin fever and intergroup tensions and, you know, what would happen if you went to a extended family Thanksgiving and no one left for two years, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But the other part of it was that it was remarkably satisfying, joyous to understand that we were vital. We were not just morons. We, because it was a man, you know, man designed, human designed biosphere, we had to keep the technology going because the technology was supplementing a lot of what our earth does for free and so reliably. We weren't mm. parasites or cancers. We were a necessary part, but all that technology, and this drove the engineers absolutely out of their minds at first, mm. all that technology was not going to keep Biosphere 2 healthy nor our big species diversity alive. Life was going to do that, but we had to provide the right circumstances for life. And one of the big uh, jobs that the biospherians had is we wanted to have a beautiful diverse biosphere if some vines started taking over as the morning glories did in the rainforest threatening species extinctions mm -hmm. we would move in i call us team biodiversity and mm -hmm. i think that is happening you know restoration ecology you know a lot of what we incipiently were doing in biosphere 2 is being played out on a large scale and needs to be made even bigger we were the number one thing that we thought we couldn't stay in there for two years is we thought we couldn't control carbon dioxide, that mm. carbon dioxide levels would really go up. That was in our minds like every day. You know, we were we and we could look at sensors that were changing every 15 seconds. Cloudy mm. weather in the winter meant that our CO2 would rise. So we had to get involved. You know, atmospheric management was a hands-on job for the biospherians and in our consciousness. Now, mm. Kyoto had just happened, but, you know, all of that climate change, which rightfully so, when we get over the pandemic, we need to get back to really addressing climate change and making changes that I think will be win-wins. If mm. we get rid of air pollution, that's not only helping climate, it's helping human life. If we make our food cleaner, if we make our water cleaner, it's like, you know, being ecological is not a penalty. <laughs> it is the quality of the life that we live on planet Earth. I, I mean, I'm, I'm so... Uh... I wouldn't say that I'm doggedly optimistic myself, nor have I ever been. They think I'm a hair of cynical, I, I think, if I have a... I, I am finding that in during a pandemic, everyone's becoming caricatures of themselves. The optimists <laughs> are the most optimistic. The pessimists are the most pessimistic. The conspiracy theorists are the most conspiratorial. The, uh, the, the left is the most left, right, right. And, and just everyone's just like cartoon versions of themselves. So I'm realizing like, oh yeah, I'm a very cynical skeptical person and that that i've been working on that about myself but now it's coming to the surface well you know i i love uh oh, oh well I, I was just going to say that i'm that i am definitely optimistic that 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 people can become 
more aware of climate change than ever, but I'm pessimistic that policymakers are going to use this as an opportunity to strip every environmental regulation that exists in the name of feeding our our the you know our God the free hand of the uh, the invisible hand of the free market you know as a sacrifice to the economy and um, and so I'm I'm uh, definitely concerned <laughs> about that. Um, well, being an optimistic does not mean that you disregard facts and probabilities, but you know we need to take the longer picture. And, right. and you know, well, well, first off. I can't stand, you know, and a lot of people who are called environmentalists are, and maybe rightly so, raising gloom and doom. Yeah. That's not a winning formula. I mean, right. I, I think we, we much more need to say to people, and we have an instinct in virtually all of us, I don't, you know, unless you're really, really damaged. Uh, E.O. Wilson called it biophilia. You know, I grew up in New York, you know, I grew up in Queens with a lot of amazing parks. Take a Manhattanite and put them in Central Park, you know, put almost any human being in a, a natural setting. And there, you know, we just fire off all these great hormones and pleasure gets triggered. So I think that, uh, and a friend of mine formulated this, optimism is a yoga, it's a discipline. Mm -hmm. And we can't afford, I mean, it's just too self-indulgent to become, you know, pessimistic uh, and despairing even worse. Because what it will do is psych psychologically, one, make your day much lousier, and it will probably nullify your belief that you can make a difference. And, you know, again, going back to that particular experience, Biosphere 2 was like, the, when I first uh, met the Russians who were the leaders in closed systems, I was we had a project, we have a project in Australia. I sent them all boomerangs from Perth because it, it really struck me that in a closed system, the consequences of actions come back really rapidly like a boomerang. You know, instant karma, you might say, if you're new age. You know, yeah. <laughs> there are no anonymous actions. So the really beautiful thing in Biosphere 2 was even a small action like let's improve the irrigation somewhere here or there. Well, we have to cut some, you know, PVC pipe and pull out some glue and solvent. That's not an anonymous action. We would actually check with our analytic laboratory and see the gases that will be released by making that technical repair. How are we doing on levels of those gases? Mm -hmm. So it's quite extraordinary when, you know, I, I think that, you know, we have smog indexes and this, that, and the other. We should be really letting people know if you live in Chicago or Detroit or Santa Fe, what are the pollutants in your air and where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? Let's have, you know, random, you know, analyses of the food that we're eating. So you can appreciate, you know, if it's a local grower only using natural sprays or it's laden with residues of pesticides you know the mm. more we become aware of what's happening why are we putting up with it mm. you know i i spent you know so i came out of new york city okay and when i grew up they they said and now i think it's probably true that even if you didn't smoke you know breathing new york city air was like two packs of secondhand cigarette smoke uh a, a right. day you know i spent um 
20 years of my life on and off up in the Kimberley region of West Australia, Think Crocodile Dundee, which is kind of my, my movie because I was a New Yorker and there I was running a project in, in the outback. But once you really experience how clear a sky can be, how beautiful well water can be, you know, how there's not a trace of pollution, and then you experience going to London or New York or pretty much any industrial city in the world, and you feel your lungs begin to take shallower breaths. Why do we put up with it? We don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, so many questions. One, um, <laughs> you hear this is this is so so absolutely fascinating. Um, one, you you trying to take despair away from me now? That's just like that's the only thing I'm holding <laughs> holding on to. Despair is my oldest friend. Um, I, I I that's an important uh, message about uh, you, you know I've I've had moments in my life where where I've had to be mindful of of learning helplessness you know and and continuing to move forward and look for solutions in my life, but I also um, it, you know in terms of in terms of scale. Um, what are, what are some of the comparisons? It's almost, it's almost like in, in biosphere two compared to biosphere one, it, it doesn't, I think what's hard to get through to people in biosphere one is, is the impact in one individual can make. Whereas when you're in biosphere two, how many people were in biosphere two? Eight. Uh, eight, eight people. Yeah. And you guys were the only mammals. I, I take it. Right. No, we had we had uh, domestic animals. We had oh. pigs and chickens and goats. I guess chickens aren't mammals. Oh, okay. <laughs> we we had little galagos uh, in the wilderness areas. They're like a a, a small type of African monkey, mm -hmm. which which uh, I think we entertained them and they entertained us. Mm -hmm. But yeah, pretty, uh, huh. we were certainly the largest mammals. Well, I, I guess the point um, I was thinking of is, is, you know, a lot of this, um, every, everyone can do their part to lower their individual carbon footprint. And then you do that and you put all the work into recycling and using gray water systems in your house and you do all the, and then you, and then you look at, at um, the government giving a bunch of your tax money away to oil companies for subsidies and 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 like you said you see you see these these factories cranking out smoke I, I imagine there wasn't factories in in biosphere too was there was there like manufacturing of of, of any kind in there well you know we we actually had a really uh, great uh crew member uh he, his nickname was laser he was another mark belgian flemish guy uh so he could actually fabricate spare parts and you know, we did a lot of imp you know, improvisation of system and improving systems in there, but a full, a full-on factory, I wouldn't call it. But mm -hmm. yeah, no technology is part of it. And, and by the way, you know, the Russian leaders in the field early on gave us the opposite. I, I dealt a lot with NASA and some of the other space agencies, and NASA is always like, oh, you know, we we love our engineering, we love our machines, you know. Let's try to figure out how to put the absolute minimum of life out into space. So mm -hmm. they started out trying to, as the Russians did also, just have one algae, you know, regenerate the air and water and be the food. 
Mm. And um, more than one ounce of that algae, and people get quite sick. Anyway, with the mm. Russians moved on to higher plants, and eventually NASA did too. But they said, "Look, you know, the lesson that we learned in closed system is that life is reliable, mm. because everything living has gone through millions, if not billions, of years of evolution and fine tuning. You can mm. count on technology breaking down. The only mm. question is when, not if. So mm. you, you know, so." Technologically, you have to have a lot of redundancy uh, to if you want to keep systems going technologically. But mm. life, you know, that's a wonderful viewpoint. And we think about it, you know, so, you know, in, in Biosphere 1, we are the recipients of this amazing living system. You know, I, I'm kind of a fan of Gaia because it just made people think, no, mm. I don't think that it's one living superorganism, but it's pretty astounding. And I think that, you know, for, for me, yeah, I mean, look at, look at your carbon imprint, become politically aware, aware and, and active, be a citizen, you know, at every level that you can, you know, your community, your neighborhood. Right now, fortunately, I'm 20 miles out of Santa Fe, and it's planting time. We're planting gardens and getting our orchards. So there's about 14 people that we are really careful about, you know, anyone going to town and anyone from town coming out, you know, we're kind of self-aggregating. But, you know, uh, you may have to give up your despair if you want to live a better life. Don't give up your, <laughs> don't give up your sense of humor and irony. Uh, you know, I, I, love a, I love a great a, a black comedy. You know, and I, I think you have to look at, at the human predicament with a fair bit of humor. Oh yeah, I, I've I've been I've been cracking more jokes than I have in like my entire career <laughs> during all of this. And humor's humor's always been a, a coping mechanism and survival mechanism for me. And I I don't shy away from a dark joke. But at the end of the day, I I, I kid, and I I do think that. Uh, you, you know, I, I don't I don't talk a lot about the environment on the show. We we talk a lot about um, neuroscience, behavior, human psychology, and um, and the idea of of learned helplessness and the science that I've learned behind it is I think one of the most troubling uh, things to me um, uh, about the human condition. And I think people should do everything that they can to avoid it. So I wanted to ask: was there in, uh, was there insects in Biosphere too? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I imagine how many different species. Many, many, and uh, we also had a number of you know volunteers uh, stowaways. We had some birds that we just couldn't trap out. Some English sparrows and a beautiful huh. rock thrasher, and unfortunately, there was a they call them a tramp species, kind of a, a pervasive uh, tropical ant that's found in greenhouses around the world. And mm. you know, it's a little bit erratic in its behavior. Uh, so we had a problem with those ants and they, they managed to wipe out a lot of our pollinators. But mm. you know, Biosphere 2 was a you know, pretty daring, I like to call it a kick-ass experiment. You know, we were leaping way beyond <laughs> what was known. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we managed to stay in there for two years, and a second crew was in there for, you know, for seven months and grew. They actually grew 100% of their food. We grew about 82% of our food. Still, pretty amazing, a complete balanced diet. But the, but there were there were surprises. There were unexpected things. 
I imagine. I mean, it's so interesting that, that you know, the idea of these butterfly effects is, so, is something most people are, are familiar with now, but, but, you know, this is the incredible undertaking that science has to do um, to examine these butterfly effects on, on Earth, the idea, uh, the idea of something having a, a ripple effect that goes across the world and, and teasing apart the many variables and everything. But for you guys, there must have been, was there, ever, there must have been times when like, oh, we're going to plant some peas here. And then next thing you know, you're overrun by ladybugs or something. Oh, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> There must have been a lot of stuff like that happening. I can can remember, uh, in fact, we were replanting the top of our cloud forest because we we couldn't keep it cool enough. So we were switching ecology and planting sugarcane and whatnot. And I put a trowel into the soil and, my God, about 25 scorpions, like, you know, out of some Hollywood horror movie, you know, emerge from the soil and start moving towards me. So (laughs) little moments of horror. Wow. But, but, you know, what I loved about Biosphere 2 is, you know, if people remember some of the events, we started having this mysterious loss of oxygen. And it got serious enough that, you know, we fell to 14% oxygen. That's like 7% less than normal, you know, sea level uh, oxygen on planet Earth that we finally had to inject oxygen. And, mm-hmm. you know, we did that in a measured way. Yes, uh, you know, we wish we didn't have to do it, but... We didn't want to imperil the health of, uh, of ourselves and other creatures in there. Mm-hmm. But when we went into, the, we had these lungs, these variable volume chambers, and it had like 25% oxygen. Hmm. And suddenly we were laughing and running around. It, it was under a geodesic dome covering to protect it from the elements. And I realized I hadn't heard any running feet for months and months and months because Mm -hmm. another thing that happened is that we were following our resident doctor was a pioneer on the low calorie but nutritionally dense diet low cal Mm -hmm. diet and he loved it because we were the first group of of people who couldn't cheat and were studied intensively on that we were like madly trying to increase the amount of calories so we started victory gardens all around the biosphere trying to put a plant to catch the sunfall the amount of sunlight entering biosphere 2 is our limiting factor Mm -hmm. so i'm a bit of an insomniac and i would be planting and moving trees to better positions you know in the wee hours of the night and you know we we grew about two tons more food the second second year in Mm. you know we were still you know for the amount of physical labor we were doing farming and doing all the research and maintenance of the facility but that 2,000 extra uh which 4,000 extra pounds were quite marvelous so we regained a little bit of our weight the second year um what what did uh what did you or or most people kind of miss the most while while you were in there? Did did you were you guys making your own booze or anything? In there? Yeah, you were. Yeah, we were. Yeah, the, our, our our best product was a banana wine. That was, oh. I, I don't know whether you know it would be you know a supermarket or a trade show would carry it, but compare we we uh, we had we were growing rice. And we have a lot of Tibetan uh, friends. We did a project with Tibetan refugees in Kathmandu. So we all knew about Tibetan chung. It's kind of a rice beer. So we mm-hmm. made some chung, and we, 
beets, red beets were one of our spectacularly successful crops such that we really got sick of it and you yeah. had to figure out what to do with it. So a Belgian researcher with the European Space Agency gave us a recipe for red beet whiskey. <laughs> and that was so bad. That was so bad. I mean, it's hard to even you know, tell you, but we were so starved for alcohol that it got consumed anyway. Yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> you, you know Shane, I wanted to go, you asked how did I get involved, and there's yeah. an aspect of this which I definitely want to share. And Absolutely. It's, and, I, and it will also be a, a way for me to segue into tell, talking about this movie, Spaceship Earth, yeah. that's going to be released soon. So I came to New Mexico. I was 22 years old. I just graduated from Dartmouth. I'm from an immigrant Jewish family. They wanted me to become a medical doctor or some, something with a respectable profession behind it. I wanted to you know, do something different. So through a series of good fortunes, I, I met this group. You know, I met someone who was headed out to New Mexico where they had just bought some land to begin ecological work. And when I came there, I was told that the program was we do three things. We work on ecology. We start enterprises and we make our projects self-supporting mm. and we do theater. So you were bringing up multidisciplinary things. Mm. And when I heard that, and I didn't really know, you know, what the theater meant, et cetera. What, I didn't know what any of it meant. I thought enterprise was getting a job and I'd mm. been a taxi driver. I was going to do that maybe in, in Santa Fe. But when I heard that program, it suddenly struck me that what was really making me discontent was the idea that I had to pick one thing that I was going to become mm. rather than living a balanced life. Because I think all of us have an artistic, emotional side. Enterprise made sense to me because then you, you're doing your innovative work, but you're actually interfacing with the people around you. And if what you're doing is good and validated, you can survive economically. And ecologically, you're working on the bottom line that you can maintain, that you've got viable economics, but the top line that you're actually improving the environment. So our test case was, and this is where I'm now, uh, my, my main base is, and I, I spent my first decade with the Institute here, Synergia Ranch, uh, 135 acres of really crap land <laughs> that's actually been ecologically messed up in about every which way you can think. They took out the trees to plow up the, you know, the prairie to put crops in. They overgrazed, you know, it was kind of a, a scene of ecological devastation that I as an Easterner had never seen. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, I, I was put in charge of trees and gardens. We planted 2,000 trees, including 500 fruit trees in an orchard. We started building our own buildings because we had at that time, it was like the base camp, the marine boot camp for ecotechnics. So, you know, in those early years, we'd have 20 people in the winter and 35 people in summer. So we started building adobe, adobe houses and a geodesic dome, which got us to meet Bucky Fuller so this film, Spaceship Earth, is pretty interesting because it takes the trajectory and, and very fortunately, both because we're doing theater and making films, etc., we had tremendous documentation. 
So when these people, you know, got intrigued by seeing the images of Biosphere 2, and they came out when they looked at our archive room, and they realized the amount of documentation of all sorts that dated back from the beginnings of the group in Haight-Ashbury in 1967. That's when the theater arm of our sort of overall enterprise began. The theater of all possibilities. How, mm -hmm. How's that for a good uh, uh, no bounds kind of <laughs> title? So we had a theater that uh, we did classic plays and uh, new plays, uh, new age plays. Uh, one of our visionaries uh, members who invented Biosphere 2 is a playwright. So we mm -hmm. did everything from Shakespeare and Brecht and Moliere to you know, pretty cutting edge plays at all of our projects. So out in the outback of Australia where I was, we would make outback comedies sort of lampooning our own lives and the lives of this crocodile Dundee with lots of aboriginals instead of Native American culture. And we put it on in aboriginal communities uh, as part of the town festival and you really get integrated in and, you know, here's a bunch of Yanks, and Aussies don't like Yanks a whole lot, you know, but they could see that we could take the piss. That's uh, Australia from, you know, poking fun at yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, we could take a joke and we can make a joke, you know. Right. <laughs> so, so I think that the three elements, so that, you know, one of the beautiful things, you know, Spaceship Earth is an amazing, I, I hope people find it uh, inspirational. They brought a few of us up uh, to Sundance, so it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and thank God that happened in late January, and it wasn't scheduled for March or April. Right. So it got sold to Neon there, the distributor, and you know, stay tuned for how Neon figures to distribute it. But I think they're getting excited that, like you're saying, in this pandemic, this is kind of a pause time that maybe the story of Biosphere 2 told in a much you know, deeper way uh, and that trajectory of people who are trying to do, you know, kind of make a different world and make a difference, even with small numbers. Mm -hmm. So the film is, is quite interesting. So if, as, a, as an optimist, seeing this is a, uh, this is a chance for, this is a chance for change, this, uh, this is a chance for raising awareness, for implementing new policies, new individual behaviors. I, I mean, what, one of the big things um, that, that happens a lot of times in crisis is people, people get really into self-help uh, stuff and they start exercising more and taking right. better care of themselves. And there, there are real opportunities for individual and coll collective um, progress and growth. What are some of the, um, the the lens through which you see uh, the Earth, the Biosphere One? If if you could, um, what are some of the least costly um, and easiest to implement changes that would have the biggest benefit as you see it? All right. Well, I'm going to go all metaphysical on you. <laughs> Uh, and I think in the, you know, the eighthfold path of the Buddha, the, you know, the, you start with putting the right ideas into your brain. Uh, there's a, a phrase maybe from the Middle East, metanoia, change of thinking. So I think, you know, before you, you know, get on your bicycle and, you know, decide to, you know, cut down on soft drinks and many other things that may be useful to you personally and the planet. I think it starts with you really 
grokking, there's a good 60s word, with you really trying to understand what your life is based on. You know, and I was thinking when you're talking about this, you know, my, my isolation includes going out into orchards, but I'm just picturing, you know, if you're in Chicago or Detroit, when you come out and you go to the nearest green park and, you know, breathe in the oxygen under those trees, you know, it'll be a little bit special because you've been inside maybe only watching nature documentaries. And there's a phrase, you know, he, he was kind of a, a hero of, of mine. So, you know, I, I'm going to pass this on. But he said something about we're not going to save the earth, you know, the biosphere unless we fall in love with it. Because you don't fight for something unless you're in love with it. So I think, you know, it's partly really grokking, really coming to an understanding that wherever you are on planet Earth, if you are a mammal like us and you have lungs, you are bring, you know, breathing air that has been, you know, enriched with oxygen because of all the plants in the ocean and all the trees and everything, all the grass, even the crabgrass you may not like in your lawn. They're all working big time to produce that. Think about your food. You know, after Biosphere 2, I was in charge of the sewage system. So I became a shit recycler with constructed wetlands. And at the end of a, another boat book I wrote called The Wastewater Gardener, I came up with, hold your britches, the fecal meditation. The meditation <laughs> when you get on the loo and, you know, you're going to you know hit the lever your beautiful nutrition hopefully is going to go someplace where plants and microbes can digest it and put it back in circulation. But, you know, what I loved about those constructed wetlands is they connected people with thinking about where's the water. When you turn the water on in, you know, your tap, where's that coming from? The more you can learn about that and, you know, water is on a vast, you know, remember from high school, you know, high school boring uh, science classes, the water cycle, mm. the carbon cycle, you know, so the more you, you know, get, get curious about what keeps you alive, what keeps you alive, and you will keep on running into the power of what we used to call mother nature. Yeah. Mm. Love your mother, love your mother nature. So I mm. think, you know, the, the really profound uh, change happens in, you know, trying to internalize that and just let that percolate, keep working on it. You know, I wish in a way that I was in Biosphere 2 because after that oxygen thing, we sort of said to ourselves, we're never going to take a breath of air in a negligent and thoughtless way. Now, of course, you know, we're human beings and mm -hmm. habits come in. But I, you know, that, that experience is not that far away from me. And, and people have, you know, you don't have to go into a biosphere. You know, you, people who take care of Central Park, you know, they're out there every, you know, in a million ways. And you can fall in love with microbes, you know, the, the microbiome. Look at all of that we're learning about. In fact, I'd learned, you know, COVID-19 alerted to me. I knew nothing about viruses. Mm -hmm. You know, so a few bad germs Same. give microbes a bad name. Google, 
you know, viruses. You know, it's like that thing about the number of organisms in a pinch of, of, of uh, soil. If you take a little uh, spoonful of water, there are gazillions of viruses. There are gazillions of viruses everywhere. They're more numerous than the microbes. And in Biosphere 2, you know, we paid reverence to the microbes. They were our safety factor. We call them the unsung heroes of the biosphere. So yeah, COVID-19 has given viruses a bad name right now, but they're part of the biosphere. We're all biosphere. Now back to the, we chose biospherian rather than econaut or bionaut with the idea being that, oh, those people inside that system are biospherians. Well, what in God's name are we out here? We're biospherians of biosphere one. The microbes are biospherians of Biosphere 1, the redwoods, the mm -hmm. technology. When I, before I left Biosphere 2, I hugged a lot of concrete pillars and stroke machines because they also were on that journey with us. They were part of our biosphere. Mm -hmm. So technology is not, it's not, you know, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Technology is not going to be, it's not going to be a techno fix, but, te you know, technology is part of the modern world. I, and I think, you know, some astute uh, observers thought Biosphere 2 is really interesting because the interplay, the interconnection between technology and life was so profound in there, but it is in our modern world. Hmm. So... This is uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, let's make sure and plug all of your stuff one more time. Where where can <laughs> where where can people check out your book? Where can people check out Spaceship Earth? Well, Spaceship Earth, you know, they could Google or you know, because I think there's going to be news coming. Uh, what is it? It's April eighth. You know, by by mid April, I think Neon is going to be uh, announcing how it's going to get distributed. So that's Spaceship mm -hmm. Earth. Uh, the second edition of Life Under Glass, you can go to Synergetic Press, mm -hmm. the publisher both of the original Life Under Glass, the second edition, and they're also the publisher of My Wastewater Gardener, and I didn't tell you the subtitle, Preserving the Planet One Flush at a Time. So, oh, dark humor. I always tell people <laughs> it is the funniest book you're going to read about shit recycling. And my, uh -huh. the other book that I want to plug is Pushing Our Limits. That was published, Insights from Biosphere 2, that was published by the University of Arizona Press. You can go to the University of Arizona Press or all any of these books are available through your usual internet suspects. Um, without opening, as maybe I'll have you on again sometime to talk about one of your other books. Uh, but but I I just I did just happen to mention um, gray water in, in passing as an example, um, uh, not realizing that you had you had that book. Uh, is that um, is that something that is it, I I haven't looked into it myself. I haven't I haven't uh, I've never owned my own home. Um, but is that something that's fairly easy to for the average person to implement? Uh, no, and it's, and it's also not a panacea. It's not the universal. <laughs> yeah. I, I, lo I love constructed wetlands. Uh, they're really difficult if you're in an urban environment mm -hmm. because the trade-off is you need uh, area to make, you know, to make these constructed wetlands. Certainly, you know, being conscious of your water use is, is a good thing. Uh, mm. 
but the book, I think the book will uh, interest people, even if they're not going to go out and build a wastewater garden in their backyard or, you know, tell the super of their apartment building, I'm going to make a few changes in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, I also, you know, cover composting toilets and gray water irrigation. But mm-hmm. it's, it's also one of those paradigms. I think I quote somebody who said, you know, uh, if you really study the, the modern sewage systems of planet Earth, you have to ask, is there intelligent life on planet Earth? Because we waste, we waste all of these nutrients and we treat the products of our body like they are some deadly chemical. And I don't mean light, you know, you, you need to be responsible about it. But we are literally flushing away incredible amounts of clean water. We're, you know, the in, part of the insanity is using clean drinking quality water to flush away our our bodily uh, wastes. And those bodily wastes used to be called night soil, even in Europe and certainly in, in Asia, because they are, you know, the stuff that life thrives on. Mm. So it's, a, mm. you know, it, it's a beautiful book and it's hilarious because uh, I was going to call it uh, Holy Shit, but my publisher said <laughs> we are not going, we're not going to be able to sell it to libraries and you can't even, right. you can't even use that term that four-letter word on NPR when you're talking about <laughs> you're not uh, cussing, you're actually talking about the subject. You know, yeah, so, yeah. So, so it's another one of those places that, you know, we need to make a paradigm shift. Mm. And a paradigm shift is coming mm. because, as people have pointed out, if everyone on planet Earth had a Western flush toilet, we don't have enough water to flush them. Mm-hmm. So as part of my optimism, yeah, the political climate is pretty rough right now, not just in this country, but in a lot of countries. But long term, if you're on nature's side, if you're on the side of, of your health, human health, and the biosphere, time is on our side. Mm-hmm. The, these changes are being resisted. There's big money and power, you know, that the people who profit off business as usual. But, you know, their days and years are numbered. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me on my show. This is absolutely terrific. I can't wait for people to check out all of your things. Do you have just a, a, a general website that people can go to to check out all of it yeah, in one the, place? There, there's a few. There's eco, ecotechnics, E-C-O-T-E-C-H-N-I-C-S dot E-D-U, synergeticpress.com. I have a pretty underwhelming personal website called Mark Nelson Biospherian. So mm-hmm. if you put in Mark Nelson and Biosphere 2, you know, it might be page two or three. You'll find, the, <laughs> you'll find that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I just realized, Shane, that you're, you are the eye in the eye. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that, this is uh, yeah, my, yeah. My, tip, uh, my, my podcast logo it makes for a nice little virtual um, background so Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining me and thanks, thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next episode Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I don't know who's coming up next because things are moving so fast. We're just trying to crank out as many of these as possible. Have a lot of uh, bottlenecks. Try, still trying to get a handle on, on uh, 
things trying to improve the um, editing flow and I I'm like I have a zillion things on my plate I've, I've planted a, I've been throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks you know this this pandemic like like many of us has pulled the rug out from from under us um, in a in a many ways and um, and me being a, a stand-up comedian my 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 life uh, my career it won't come back um, for you know there's gonna the re- realistically I think there's gonna need to be a vaccine before stand-up comedy can come back and uh, so I, I don't think that's happening this year so the good news is is you can see more of me anytime online you can see things like the quarantine couple um, my web series on there you can check this podcast out on youtube now see the guests faces see their reaction you can see how animated i get when i'm talking about science and if you want to leave some comments share them with friends stuff like that that is really helpful and um and then you can uh you can support me on patreon if you want and and check out all my social media stuff and um i'm trying to figure out patreon because i'm frankly trying to figure out how to make money uh, at this time, I have a entire team of people that um, were involved in all my live touring, and I have them helping me um, change my entire career very quickly. And I'm um, just about out of money, and so um, I don't like asking for money. But uh, if um, if I don't have um, some income coming in soon. Um, I'll, I'll be fine, but I'll have to dial back the uh, what I'm able to put out, and uh, I, I just won't be able to um, pay people anything. So I'll, I'll have to be doing everything myself, and that's going to be a difficult and slow process. So if you like all the new content that I've been putting out, um, I, I still haven't figured out the many different like ways of giving extra benefits to people on Patreon who need a little extra incentive to um, support what I do. But um, I, I, you will get free access to uh, the Head Talks shows and things like the Q&A for the Psychonautics documentary, which, um, uh, which will otherwise be uh, $7.00 ticket but for five uh, a show but for five dollars a month you can be on there you can interact you can ask your own questions and if you can't make it on the particular time that it's airing you can catch the replay later all for free for or all all included in anyone that has a um, five dollar a month support uh, supporting me on patreon and um yeah i would uh greatly appreciate it i'm i'm feeling um very good and creative and proud about the quality of the content that i'm putting out learning a bunch and uh i'm at the same time um the most uh financially stressed and and burdened and anxious um in that way that i have ever been and it would be um in an ideal world not only would i be able to put out this kind of content that I 
really like and believe in and it's high quality content but I'd be able to put out more of it and make it even better and I don't know what kind of compromises I'm going to have to make once I run out of money which will be by um, the end of May if things if I don't figure something else so if you want to support me on there you can if you broke yourself then don't I understand there's a lot of free things that you can do um, you can review the podcast and do stuff like that if you have the free time to do it that would be really helpful um, and uh, I appreciate it um, a lot so I hope you're well out there and um, I hope uh, hope you're getting through uh, I'm sure um, like myself you guys are having some rough patches here and there so I hope you're getting through them I'm going to keep on trying to get um, good content out there to help us all with our mental health and navigating and figuring out this um, uh, this horrible situation so I hope you're doing well out there and I'll talk to you next episode a podcast network